You're listening to the Sales Process Excellence Podcast with Michael Webb. Hello, this is Michael Webb. Some people focus on data and evidence and applied statistics to make businesses improve. Other people focus on customer value, reaching decision makers, and selling based on value rather than price. In this podcast, we concentrate on both. The Sales Process Excellence podcast brings these two different mindsets together to help create more wealth for everyone. I'm really excited today with my guest, Frank Swiatek. Am I pronouncing that right, Frank? Uh, Frank Swiatek. Swiatek. I am not familiar with that name. I've never met anyone else with that name, but I'm pleased to have you on the podcast here with me today. Great. I'm, I'm really happy to be with you and, and to talk with you. So now I know you, but my audience does not. Uh, could you please give us some background, what you've done in your career and what has led you up to what you're doing now? Okay. Well, well thank you, Michael. Again, nice, nice to be here. I had a couple of experiences, and I call them my signature experiences that mm-hmm. have uh, brought me to where I am today with uh, Six Sigma. My first experience uh, was with a steel company. I was uh, actually in banking, and uh, I met a person by the name of Dr. Ken Lipke, who was a chiropractor, uh, who bought a steel company who was stuck. They were doing $9 million in sales. And he bought the steel company, and he took it to $100 million in 10 years. Oh, my. And uh, when he talked about how he did it, he was asked to go to sales and marketing executive speeches and chambers of commerce speeches and so forth, how he did this. What he would say was the fact that we went from $9 million to $100 million is the bad news. Uh, the good news, of course, is profits. And then he would get a twinkle in his eye and he would say, let me tell you the best news of all. We did it with the same people that were there. For 15 years, and I say virtually the same people because they're not the same people anymore. And uh, so, what I saw first of all was the tremendous potential that an organization has in people. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ken did certain things that were great. He had a big idea. He says we want to be a model supplier for Ford, General Motors, and Chrysler, and everything they did was to accomplish that big idea whether it was hiring somebody, buying a piece of machinery, uh, training and development. He developed an institute to train people. Other companies started to come to the institute because of our success. He brought in Dr. Earl Strong, head of executive development at Penn State University. And uh, the institute was interesting and different because we focused on mindset, skills, and behaviors. And that's still my model today when I work, uh, and I, particularly when I coach people. Uh, mindsets is, the, is your way of thinking. Um, skills are your observable competencies. And then behavior is what you do and what you don't do. Hmm. So this is a company that you worked for, I guess, early in your, your career. Yes, yes. And, and I saw, uh, well, I was, I was involved in developing, helping develop the, the institute. Okay. Uh, it was called the Gibraltar Institute and bringing in Dr. Earl Strong. And then that eventually got me on to, you know, be doing uh, seminars and workshops and speeches and so forth. Started right there. And then uh, the other thing that was terrific about it was a, a very optimist, optimistic environment. Uh, when you walked into Gibraltar Steel, 
a big sign greeted you. Uh, Welcome to the world of opportunity. (laughs) That was great. I mean, opportunity to grow, opportunity to develop, opportunity to serve our customers, you know. So uh, that was the initial experience that I had, uh, you know, about the the importance of uh, a big idea, the importance of training, the importance of mindset, skills, and behaviors. And then my next experience actually was with Verizon Wireless. I was an outside performance consultant for 15 years with them. And while I say outside, I was really embedded. I was on the inside. I I attended sales meetings, sales rallies, operational meetings, strategic meetings, problem-solving meetings for about 15 years. It was a time when Verizon went from 91 million in sales to 62 billion in sales. So it's just, it's staggering. And um, the staggering part about it, I tell people, whatever your revenue was last year, multiply it 325 times. (laughs) You'll see how big a number that was. Wow. Um, So based on that book, uh, based on that uh, experience, uh, the then president, Denny Striegel, and I wrote a book called Managers, Can You Hear Me Now? Hard-Hitting Lessons on How to Get Real Results. And uh, it was published by McGraw-Hill, and it's in 65 countries, and eight countries have purchased publishing rights to the book. Mm-hmm. So that now that one, now we focused, you know, the, the, the lessons from that one was uh, managers are accountable for results, uh, the accountability factor in organizations, the trust factor in organizations. Um, we find that any initiative, even Six Sigma, uh, if there's a lack of trust, uh, the research shows that the lack of trust is going to cause the initiative to fail. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a huge thing in organizations. Well, those are two really uh, different uh, experiences, but from the magnitude of them both, I mean, I can see why they would have been formative. Um, and so now what do you do now? Okay, so now uh, I'm spending a lot of time uh, in the area of Six Sigma. Uh, particularly, I'm working with a client uh, in uh, call centers. I have, had, have had experience in call centers working, uh, you know, with uh, various companies. But the experience actually came with a pilot project that I did for the American Bar Association. Uh, on a TQM project, a total quality management project. They wanted to see whether or not TQM applied to law firms, and the local law firm in Buffalo asked me if I would be their facilitator. So, you know, we ran TQM programs, the tools of TQM, the meeting skills of TQM, uh, the communication skills of TQM, so forth. And then we had to go down to Atlanta for these law firms around the country to report the progress. Mm-hmm. on TQM. And our facilitator in Atlanta was Dr. Myron Tribus, who was executive director of advanced engineering studies at MIT. And he made a he, he said a phrase that really led me to all of this. And his phrase was this, uh, results occur, good or bad, because the process is in place producing them. Correct. So, yeah. That led me to, you know, TQM was kind of the forerunner of Six Sigma. 
Right, right. But so let me let me stop you there for a moment because I have a little bit of familiarity with Myron Tribus. He was one of the uh -huh. early lights uh, in the whole um, operational excellence, quality in management movement. And I actually talked to him on the phone one time back in the early 2000s. I think he passed away uh, yes. a few years ago, yes. 2013 yes. or 14 or something. Um, but but I talked with him on the phone, and I I had at that time started organizing conferences on Six Sigma in sales and marketing. I wasn't organizing them myself, but I mean I was helping. I was I was uh, one of the key individuals getting those off the ground back in 2005 2004 uh, timeframe. And I told him that I was pursuing this in sales and marketing, and asking him what he thought about. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, you know, applying these logical, rational, scientific kinds of approaches in management into sales and marketing. Mm -hmm. And his response, I was sort of surprised by because he, he just was frustrated with it. <laughs> you know, all those guys in sales and marketing, they're all just living, you know, it's just all hearsay and they're resistant to all this and it's just corrupt and it's just, you know, you just can't do anything with them. I was, he was, <laughs> he was down on sales and marketing managers. But he was right. <laughs> he was. He was definitely right about it. Uh, but uh, anyway, that was a. It was an interesting little, uh, you know, just one conversation I had. But I did get him on the phone, and and for the audience, he has written a couple of articles that are absolutely worth reading. I know one I continually refer to um, huh? is um, now it's running out of my head. The disease. The uh, mm, Z theory. Gene theory. Gene, explain what that Gene, is. Germ, germ theory. theory. Germ theory germ of management. Theory. Explain what that is. Well, I'm not familiar, but I know the title. Ah, okay. Well, so I'll explain what it is. So, okay. so he's comparing the state of the medical sciences in the early mm. 1800s with the mm. state of the medical sciences in the early 1900s. Okay. So they went through this enormous shift with the with the discovery by Louis Pasteur and others of germs, mm -hmm. which you couldn't even see, right? Mm. And this led to the need for sterilization and san you know, sanitary um, practices completely changed the way doctors needed to practice medicine. Well, if you mm. were in the uh, medical profession in around 1860 or shortly after the Civil War, when this was really coming, you know, to the fore, um, you had patients your whole career where, you know, they just expected you and, and you expected to be wearing the same old dirty raincoat in surgery full of blood. Mm -hmm. It never got washed, right? It, it, and your wow. hands were dirty and they went from one wow. patient to the next patient to the next patient and that's how they did it. If all of a sudden you started saying, no, I can't, I'm not going to do that anymore. It's like confessing that you were infecting your patients in the past. And those doctors didn't want to do that, right? Mm -hmm. And and so it was this huge mindset shift that was not welcomed by the medical mm. profession. Just as in management at the time of uh, Deming and Myron and others, when we were realizing in North America that there was a much more effective and scientific way to manage things, the old line of executives and managers, they didn't want to change the way that they thought. It, it was embarrassing to have to admit that they were going on hearsay. Ah, ah, yeah, interesting point.
Yeah. So, so he was at the same time very sensitive and respectful of the way, you know, the people thought in the old mindset. He still was able to convey the value of this more scientific, um, you know, more insightful way of using data and evidence and leading people in businesses. So these very, very major contributions to the whole theory. So, so that was your introduction to process improvement ideas, Six Sigma and TQM. And, um, but you were also, you were involved in sales and marketing at the same time. So that's an unusual background. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, I, I was. There's no question about it. Yep, absolutely. I was doing uh, learning dynamics in Boston. They had hired me to do programs around the country on strategic selling. And uh, Canada, it was the uh, uh, Waterloo Management Education Center. I did a lot of programs for them in uh, the anatomy of a successful salesperson. So. Yeah, I was doing a lot of training, a lot of I've done almost 3600 presentations. Mm. And I've worked for over uh 20 25 Fortune 500 companies. For heaven's sakes. Well, don't don't say too much more about that or people will start thinking you're an old guy like me. Oh, well, you yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. No, oh, no, absolutely not. Absolutely. But you were talking about what people didn't know about germs. Mhm. One one of the phrases that I use is, do you remember a picture by the name of Satchel Page? Yes. So he played in the old, he was very flamboyant. He played in the old Negro League and, you know, some some innings he would have the outfielders sit in the dugout while he pitched. <laughs> Sometimes he mm-hmm. would have the infielders sit on the grass behind him while he pitched, you know. But he came to the Cleveland Indians and he became a philosopher king of, of sorts. And one of the phrases I use from him which talks about you know things don't that you don't know he, he once said it's not what you don't know that gets you into trouble it's what you know that just ain't so that right. gets you into trouble so yeah. I, and i use that a lot because uh particularly when i was doing this this particular job uh working on these uh sales scripts uh you know people would say oh this is a good sales script this is a good sales script we use it all the time and then you get the results back and it's not a good sales script. <laughs> right. Right. So, so that, uh, and that brings us to the thing that caught my eye um, uh, for my uh, audience. Frank uh, approached me and said, I have been doing a uh, Six Sigma project in sales. And he described how the project went. And it was in a very traditional um, arena in mm-hmm. the sales um industry the sales function where people are doing a lot of cold calling so so um i'd like you to, to describe this project if you can name the the uh the, the company that you did the project for how did it get started how did they perceive the problem they were having uh what, what was the, the the basis for this okay well uh, the basis was we were looking at the sales script and it, it was a uh a better business bureau mm-hmm. uh, up in Buffalo. It's called the Upstate New York Better Business Bureau. Now, are those franchised and organizations, or how are those? Kind no, of- no, they're part of a network. Uh, they're part of an overall organization, and they're governed by a council. So it's like uh, an, an association overall- or something. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and they're very valuable. I mean, it's it's really interesting. Uh, as an example, in Upstate New York, this is an amazing figure. 
they get a call or they get a contact every 13 seconds about a business. Really? Can you imagine? Wow. Uh, and, and upstate New York, it, you know, it amounts to about 25, uh, 2.5 million calls a year. So companies are losing money and they don't know they're losing money because they're not an accredited member of the Better Business Bureau. Hmm. So a person, you know, look at that. I want to hire a plumber. They go to plumber. He's not accredited and they go right down to the next person. Hmm. So people are losing business and don't even realize it. But at any rate, yeah. So the way we got started, we were talking about scripting and I'm, are you familiar with neuromarketing at all? If you have you any experience with neuromarketing? Um, there's another name for it. Um, but if I understand it correctly, um, um, they are using some science that explains, um, how the mind works so that mm -hmm. if someone it looks to the upper right, they're thinking sort of logically. If they look to the upper mm -hmm. left, you know, they're thinking more emotionally or something like that. N neuro something. I can't remember. Neuro cybernetics or something like that. Okay, well that might be a, that might be a different use of it. Uh, but neuromarketing actually came from focus groups, okay. and they found they found that focus groups uh, uh, were not very reliable in providing information. You know that uh, people don't often tell the truth, or somebody takes over a focus group and so mm -hmm. forth. So neuromarketing was an attempt to get more accurate information. So it actually merges. Uh, the field of uh, EEGs, hmm. uh, and what you do is 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 you put the probes on people's head, and you ask them questions, and you'll see brain spikes, which are indications of attention and interest. Ah, okay. So it's not what they say; it's how the brain spikes. Well, we did this neuromarketing study uh, for the BBB. And we found, we brought a bunch of business people in, and we took them to the Dent Neurologic Institute in Buffalo, and we had uh, the practitioners, the scientists, actually put the probes on their head, and we read parts of the script and determined that the part of the script that got the most attention uh, were uh, questions that forced the other person to think. That's when hmm. they had the most brain spikes, and that they were most open to new information after the brain spiked. So I found a definition of it. Neuromarketing is the application of neuroscience to marketing. It includes the direct use of brain imaging, scanning, or other brain activity measurement technology to measure a subject's response to specific products, packaging, advertising, or other marketing elements. Very That's interesting. It. So asking oh, them yeah, the questions yeah. that cause them to think, well, then that would make sense that that would cause more mental activity that you could detect. Yes, yes. So now, uh, you know, we, we started looking at the script and saying, okay, uh, you know, are we, are we, is it, an, is it a tell-sell script or is it an ask-listen script? Mm -hmm. uh, so we found that when we were telling in the studies and when people were hooked up to the EEG machine, they flatlined, their brain flatlined. There was there was no real peaks, nothing. Mm -hmm. So the more we talked about ourselves, the less interested they were. Right. So anyway, so then that was really the first step. Okay. Now, then uh, it kind of introduced them to the, to the notion that we can change the script. Now that led to uh, a Six Sigma study with uh, with the local branch, and then we eventually uh, went and we've got ten people in in the study. 
What we did was we took the sales script and we broke the sales script down into sections. And so as an example, uh, how many calls did you make? What percentage did you reach? You mean talk and to? And then we hit, pardon? You mean talk to? So you talk to person dials reach. the phone and then customer answers and he's talking to him. That's a reach. That's a, is that's a reach? a reach. Okay. Okay. Now, now we do an opening statement. What percentage of people cut us off in the opening statement? Oof, this is getting brutal here. <laughs> Because that that tells us how many sales opportunities we have left. So is everybody we, that they call automatically someone that they could sell to? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They're so, calling small businesses, small businesses essentially. Okay, so while the Better Business Bureau you were saying before has two and a half million people calling into it in a year looking for. Is that, is that what you said? They're looking for if, whether somebody's a member of the Better Business Bureau. That's right. That's right. But these are outbound calls where the Better Business Bureau agency is trying to get people to sign up. Sign up. Right. Right. Okay. Go ahead. Uh, so then we look at the open, we know what percentage of people cut off in the opening statement. And then the next part of the script, and we outlined it for them. And they all have different scripts. So we had to do, we had to customize it for each, each uh, location. Was the collecting information? You know, what percentage of people cut you off during the collecting information? Mm -hmm. And then you stated benefits and value. What percentage of people cut you off when you were stating benefits and value? Because after each cutoff, you have remaining sales opportunities. Right. Okay. And then you state the accreditation fee and how many people cut you off for the accreditation fee. And then you ask the commitment questions and statements. You make commitment statements and there's a cutoff there. And then there's an application process cut off. And then fi finally is your closing ratio. How many people did you close? So like any funnel, it's a sales funnel. You know, you lose uh, people all along the funnel. So our goal was to, first of all, determine the as-is state, you know, uh, which we have uh, just completed for all of the, uh, for all the call centers. Okay, here's your as a state for your sales team. Here's your as a state for each individual rep. And then we took all the sales teams and we developed a funnel for all the sales team as a point of comparison. And so how did this, how was the data collected? Were salespeople putting hashtags on a piece of paper or how was the data? That's, uh, it was, it was very, very simple, right? It was just, it was just a hashtag, a little hashtag that takes a second to do. That's, this doesn't require a big software program. Okay. So, you know, four hashtags and then they cross it, that's five. Mm -hmm. And and then they on a daily basis, they would send this to us for a two-week period. And then we would take the data and uh, we would uh, aggregate the data for them and put it into a funnel. And now we're in the process, actually... Uh, Next week, we're bringing everybody together uh, on a conference call to talk about each of their, you know, where they are in the funnel and where are the opportunities in the funnel. So if okay. you have a, if you have, a, as an example, let me just take a look at one here. You know, if you're, if you have a high opening 
statement cutoff. You know, let's assume you're a salesperson and 46, 47% of the people are cutting you off at the opening. Or I got one here, 58% statement, opening statement cutoff. Um, and the average maybe is 33%. Uh, well, that's an op sales, that's an opportunity to improve right there. So what are they doing in the opening statement cutoff that is in the opening statement that is causing these cutoffs? Are they not communicating value? Are they not communicating benefits? And we tell them you got about 16 seconds in the opening statement. You know, what are you doing during those 16 seconds? Are you just talking about the BBB? Uh, and if you're just talking about the BBB, you're going to have a problem. So these guys, they're not following a particular script, or you don't know what script and what they're saying when they make their Oh, we know what they're saying. Yeah, we know. They have a script. So we broke the script down. So I, you know, if it's, the script is about seven or eight pages, we broke the script down into sections. This is the opening statement. Okay, so are they all using the same opening statement or not? Uh, no, they're not. They're not, no. And okay, so there's different scripts, but you know what they're saying. Yes, yes. And so what conclusions can you draw from the data? Where was the primary bottleneck with them? Uh, in the opening statement, it was talking about who we are, what we do, as opposed to communicating value and uh, creating an initial rapport. So now we will test that. We will take an, take an opening statement and we will test a new statement. And that's the purpose of the call next week. I see. Okay. So, all right. So you have, uh, you said it was 12 of them? 12, 12 uh, 10, 10 altogether. 10 salespeople? No, 10 locations with ten multiple locations, salespeople. Multiple, multiple salespeople, salespeople at each location. And right. they were using different opening statements. And does the data tell you which of those opening statements are better than others? Uh, yes. Yes, it does. Okay. And so you can share that information with them and right. hopefully then persuade some of those salespeople with the, the poorer results, weaker results. Yeah. Uh, right. to try uh, a different opening script. Yes, yes. Well, that's, that's, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. So if you looked at the how many different stages you said, there was like nine or something stages? Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight stages. Well, calls made is a stage, but uh, and that's part of the problem, too. They don't, they're not making enough calls. Uh, to take advantage of the closes. We find that they have a good closing ratio, but it's a closing ratio on a very small percentage that reach the bottom of the funnel. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. <clears throat> the ones that all the way get all the way through. Um, all right. Um, so now there's so, a point I'd like to – can I make a ahead. point here? Yes, please. Uh, that I want to make is that um, the two experiences I shared with you early on uh, in this podcast was Gibraltar and Verizon Wireless. And both of those were exponential sales experiences. Mm -hmm. So what led me to Six Sigma is that I think that the Six Sigma approach has potential for exponential sales growth mm -hmm. because of the compound effect of improving stages in the sales process. Right. You know, so if you, uh, we used to say, or we used to do it simply before I got involved in Six Sigma, take a look at how many prospects you have on a, on a monthly basis, how many are you converting, and what's the average sale? 
Okay. Mm-hmm. If you if you know those numbers and you improve each one by ten percent, you have a thirty-three and a third percent increase in sales because right. of the compound compound effect. Right. So that's yeah. the other thing that we're trying to share here is that we can improve two or three or four of these areas. Uh, you'll have a compound effect on your sales. All right. So so um, the data should. Uh, have told you whether the bottleneck was in the same place for all the different branches and yes. all the different salespeople, right? Was it? Uh, no, no. It, it was different. Okay. It was different. There, there was a range for each section. Okay. okay? <clears throat> um, at some point, so. it would really be cool to look at this data, but it sounds like you're not finished with the project and so maybe maybe we we won't have the opportunity to look at the data until um the project is finished were there any other um bottlenecks besides this opening statement what was a, the next most common bottleneck or, or place where there was a fall off in the yield so uh, uh first of all let me just suggest that when you're doing the opening statement and you look at the opening statement we also uh, all the calls are monitored so we can go and listen to the calls for a period of time. So it's a combination of the script, but it's also a combination of the salesperson themselves. You know, how are they presenting the information mm-hmm. in each of these areas? Mm-hmm. So that in in uh, in particularly in, in in sales call centers, that there's three factors. One is the script that that creates success. Mm-hmm. Script is one. The second uh, is the is the list that you're using, and the third is the, the, the mindset, skills, and behaviors of the salesperson. Mm-hmm. So uh, we may find, as an example, that the person uh, is speaking in a very low, you know, easygoing manner when they're talking to a fast-paced person. Mm-hmm. Well, that has nothing to do with the script. It has a lot to do with the salesperson not recognizing that they're dealing with someone who's different than they are. Right. So, you know, those those factors come into play too. It isn't just the script, but the script is a big is a big piece of it. So, you know, we can have, you know, we have, uh, you know, one person here who has uh, actually pretty good all the way down the line. Uh, she this this person has only a twenty nine percent opening statement cutoff, thirty three percent collecting information cutoff, only a three percent benefits value cutoff, <laughs> only a six six percent fee cutoff, eighteen uh, percent commitment cutoff, no for uh, no cutoffs for application process application process, and has a fifty two percent closing ratio. So this is this is a skilled person. Now she's making a, the other thing that comes out. You're making a lot less calls, but you're having better results. Right. So yeah. it ruins well, life the is old, a lot better for you. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's it. That's exactly it. We say you know, sales is a numbers game. Well, that's not necessarily true. Right. It's a quality game. Yes, it is. And the a issue always when you are a salesperson. You know, you're one of the fish in the fish tank, right? Mm-hmm. And you can't, you just have to do what you know how to do and work as hard as you can. And so often sales managers are sort of myopically 
set up to assume that, you know, sales results come from the salesperson working harder, make more calls, you know, use magic words, you know, sell smarter, but it's an individual contributor sport. Um, But what strikes me here is that what you're learning in with data shows what kinds of communications and manner of communications and who to communicate to. I'm assuming you're tracking the lists also. You, you're right. looking at what what customers respond to better. And with that knowledge, you might be able to um, change the structure of what salespeople do and when they get introduced to a customer. Um, isn't there some, some, you, you had uh, mentioned you're using six, six Sigma thinking, but six Sigma thinking is systems thinking, which means you have to define the system that these people live in. Tell me about that. Well, yes. Uh, and you do have to define the system that they work in. And part of the system that we've identified part of the system, which is, uh, the script itself. Uh, we find the list, we find the salesperson, but there's also something else called the manager. You know, is, is the is the manager a high expectation manager? Do they do they communicate with six sigma terms as an example? Do they use six sigma terms? Uh, you know, like uh, um, what I, I had a list of them here. That, that I mean, in fact, I'm building a list of six. So sales opportunities, defects. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, measure measuring themselves. And I love the no- notion that with with these sheets that we use for tracking that salespeople themselves can tell how they're doing you know once you set your what your standards are for each of these sections mm-hmm. they can they can see for themselves how they're doing it and I, I that's what i like about management by objectives is nobody has to tell you how you're doing uh mm-hmm. it's like it's like golfing or it's like bowling you know your feedback is the results that you're getting you know from your activities mm-hmm. and so i love that you know, so the sale, it, it makes I think makes coaching a lot easier for the manager because they can they can pinpoint a specific area, and then rather than give them a generality, they they can be very specific. You know, in, in this for instance, in this opening statement, cut off. You know, just briefly state your name, state the organization, and how you help organizations. You know, we help organizations to increase their visibility, increase their presence. Uh, increase their credibility with the marketplace, you know, get right into some value for them as opposed to just you got to improve objection handling or you got to improve your opening statement cutoff, you know. So now, it forces the, forces the salesperson to be specific, and I think that's very, very important in coaching. Yeah. This is. Okay. Um, do, so, do this. Yeah. So so it's very specific. um not instruction, but very, you, you can communicate with great specificity how to do the job in the best possible manner. There you go. That's there fair? you go. So that would mean then that the variation that of results that the salespeople experience would be reduced. That's, that's what you're trying to accomplish, which does a lot of things for you, makes more people successful. But also, when you hire people, it makes their ramp up faster. Yes, so because that, you can give them not, concrete instructions on how to do the work. Less interpretation. Yeah, and I think every every person deserves the answer to the question, what do I have to do to be successful here? Yes. Um, 
Um, so do you have a target of uh, yield improvement? Like what's the yield in the baseline overall rolled throughput yield and what you think you can improve it by? Uh, we're not there yet. Next Tuesday's conference call, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that point. Because this will be a process. You know, it's not a destination. It's going to be a process. And it's getting them to, and I'm dealing with the presidents and CEOs of all uh, of all the 10 locations. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I mentioned to you, and I, I tell you why that's important. I mentioned to you the American Bar Association and whether TQM can work in a law environment. Well, one of the things we found that was critically important for TQM was top management commitment. Mm -hmm. And the top managers in a law firm are the partners. And the partners can do any damn thing they want to do and not do anything they want to do. Right. So that was lacking, and uh, and that was brought out during the, the pilot project. So we're trying to build the... The commitment, not the buy-in, because buy-in I think is soft. We're trying to build a commitment of top, the top management uh, that this is a philosophy that can yield real positive results for them. And, you know, they had their, their, their skepticism when you first started. And, uh, you know, it's the old line. It, it sounds Greek to me and, you know, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they, they're used to the old... Uh, uh, the old results that, uh, not the results, but the old activities that don't work and that you pointed out. Okay. Uh, I remember, cool. I got to tell you, I remember early in my career, the answer to things was to bring in a motivational speaker. The answer to sales <laughs> problems. Yes. <laughs> bring in a motor. Let's motivate these people. Yes, work harder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was one company from Canada that I got a, such a motivational company. I got such a kick from. It was a Climb the Highest Mountain Limited. <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> climb the highest mountain because they didn't use corporation. You know, they use limited up there. So uh-huh. climb the highest mountain, limited. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, what an oxymoron! Ooh. Yeah, I know. Without even realizing it, you know. But anyway, those were the old ways, and I think that this is, you know, using Six Sigma, using sales process. Uh, gaining the commitment of uh, top management uh, as we're we're trying to do, and they were all involved in this. Um, okay, you know, so giving them inf- a, a couple questions here. I'm sorry to interrupt. There, there. This has this has the um, earmarks of a really interesting uh, study that you're in the middle in of. Um, yes, it'd be great if we were done and we had some of the data and we could share the data and so forth. Um, well, that's a second podcast. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Um, so, so, but this is a one call close type of a sale. Oh yes. So I'm imagining that these, uh, businesses, these business bureaus would also have a web page that someone could go to, to sign up that has a sales letter on it where some of this same information would be there. Is that anything that, that you could also study with them? Well, yes. Uh, they, you know, they ask for information, and then typically what what will happen there will there will be some sales copy, uh, and then uh, they will get a call from one of the sales reps because there's a lot that goes on during the sales interview, and uh, it's tough to put it really. Uh, the sales interview probably takes about ten minutes, and there are some aspects of it to let people know that not everybody is accepted. Mm-hmm. Uh, that there are some minimum requirements involved. 
that they agree, and, and we record it, they, they agree to abide by the uh, trust uh, values of the Better Business Bureau. And, okay. you know, they, they, they have to visibly agree. So uh, they'll, they'll say they're interested. That'll go to some the, the sales manager. Sales manager will distribute it to a sales rep for an immediate call. I see. Okay, so there is some of that going on. So that kind of a call is not a cold call for that salesperson. No, it's no. a warm call, and you have a whole different set of measurements and results from that sort of thing, I would imagine. Yes, yes, yes. Very cool. So, and then, uh, so and then, uh, you know, some of the bureaus do uh, do some different things. They have a two-call thing, or a two-call process, where the first call warms the person up, and, and then they hand it off to another person uh, to, to finish the call and to close and so forth. So uh, we're going to get into those those dynamics as well. Well, my we'll hat they is have off. More six, pardon? Yeah, my hat is off to you for being involved in something in such a, I don't mean this in a derogatory way, but a rudimentary, a single call close type of a sale is a simple sale. You're talking to one salesperson, right? And it's not simple at all. But for you to be involved in something where you're actually getting data and the data is actually proving some points and, and going in a direction that will increase results, if you can get the people to try these different approaches, um, you know, this is, this is huge in a sales operation where it's always thought to be dependent upon the salesperson's personality and there's nothing that you can measure. And you're flying in the face of that. There absolutely is stuff that you can measure. And even more than that, it's stuff that salespeople benefit from. Well, that, that, that's exactly it. It's feedback to the salesperson that the, if you want to improve, this is how you improve, you know. And it's feedback to the sales manager that, uh, you know, you don't have to use many of those things you've used over the years, like motivational speakers and sales con sales contests and, uh, you can use some of those, you know, and, and, and if you like, but don't depend on it. Don't depend on it. Depend yeah. on Six Sigma for to bring you the results. Cool. Well, I really look forward to hearing the outcomes and some specific changes and improvements that were made and what some of the presidents of these uh, Better Business Bureaus have to say. Uh, from the study that you're in. So definitely we should get back together on the podcast when you have some of these results. And I'd love to share some of the charts, um, even just a simple flow chart of the stages that we talked about today, maybe some of the initial data uh, if you're able to do that. So we'll include that in this podcast, whatever it is that you are able to share, because I understand it, you know, it could be confidential. This is a, a consulting yeah. engagement yeah. that you're in the middle of, and we don't want to violate any any confidence. Right. Um, um, but yeah, any other um, um, comments or observations? Maybe you know, if someone is interested in uh, learning more about you and what you do, how could they get a hold of you? And, and any other comments you might have? So I, I would suggest they go to the website, my website, which is www.f as in Frank Switek s w i a t e k dot com. And on there, I have a, I have an offer. Uh, there's a, there's an ebook that I've written uh, for the Canisius College Center for Professional Development <clears throat> called "How to Get Results and Build Respect All at the Same Time." 
and uh, they can they can download that, <clears throat> and that's uh, that's sometimes an obstacle you get is is you know when when you're getting data from people and all, and to be a results oriented manager, you have to be tough talking, and you have to be hard nosed, and nothing could be further from the truth. You can do all of this and build respect with people at the same time, and the book shows you how to do it. Yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting. Well, I look forward to hearing how this turns out. Uh, thanks for reaching out. And if any of you in the audience are likewise doing uh, improvements, using data and evidence and systems thinking in your organization, please let me know, uh, because that is right in the sweet spot about of what we talk about and what we're interested in in the Sales Process Excellence podcast. So, Frank, thank you very much, and uh, we will speak again. Thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure being with you and uh, discussing these concepts, and uh, have a good sales day. (laughs) Same to you. Thank you. Bye-bye. The Sales Process Excellence Podcast is sponsored by Sales Performance Consultants. Discover how to improve your B2B sales with systems thinking at salesperformance.com.